Welcome to the BJA Education Podcast. Welcome to the December 2016 edition of the BJA Education Podcast. I'm Benj Marich. And I'm Cliff Shelton. This month's podcast looks at a relatively new application of a very familiar technological principle. We'll be discussing cerebral oximetry. This technology has found something of a niche in cardiac anaesthesia, although it's not universally applied. And those of you who keep up to date with the literature will know that its use has recently been suggested in other contexts, and some evidence is starting to emerge which may support this. Cliff went to speak with Dr. Will Tosh, who together with his co-author Matthew Patterell wrote the article Cerebral Oximetry in this month's BJA Education. So I'm uh, here in Birmingham with uh, Dr. Will Tosh, who's an ST6 in anaesthesia in the Warwick School of Anaesthesia. So Will, thank you very much for joining us. To start off with, can you explain the physical principles by which cerebral oximetry monitors work? I can, yeah. So um, cerebral oximeters, they use near-infrared spectroscopy to obtain continuous, non-invasive measurement of cerebral oxygenation values. Cerebral oximetry probes applied to the patient's head emit light in the near-infrared range with wavelengths of between 650 and kind of like 940 nanometers. Emitted light in the infrared range is able to penetrate the patient's skull to the underlying cerebral tissue. When this infrared light contacts haemoglobin, a change in the spectrum of the light occurs, and depending upon the oxygenation status of the haemoglobin molecule, reflected light returns uh, to the surface and is detected by photodetectors within the oximetry probes. Cerebral oximeters use Beer-Lambert's law to calculate cerebral oxygenation values. Beer's law states that the intensity of transmitted light decreases exponentially as the concentration of a substance that the light passes through increases. Therefore, as a concentration of a substance increases, the amount of light absorbed by that substance also increases. Lambert's law states that the intensity of transmitted light decreases exponentially as the distance travelled by the light through the substance increases. Combining Beer and Lambert's law, the amount of substance, in this instance oxygen, can be determined by how much light a substance absorbs. When using cerebral oximeters, we are aiming to measure the oxygenation status of uh, haemoglobin within cerebral tissues. Extracranial blood is therefore a source of potential measurement error. In order to limit this, cerebral oximeters use multiple probes and a process of spatial resolution. Figure 4 within our article depicts spatial resolution. Spatial resolution is based on the principle that the depth of tissue investigated is directly proportional to the distance between the light emitter and detector. Therefore, increasing the distance between the emitter and the photodetector will increase the depth of tissue sampled. Using mathematical algorithms, cerebral oximeters are able to limit contamination from extracranial blood and attain values representative of cerebral oxygenation. Thank you very much for that overview. I think a lot of the terms that you mentioned there are sort of uh, familiar to listeners in the context of the pulse oximeter. So is the cerebral oximeter therefore a variation on this technology with which we're all familiar? Okay, so in contrast to pulse oximeters, cerebral oximetry values are derived predominantly from venous blood. As a result, oxygen extraction by tissues has already occurred. Values obtained by cerebral oximeters reflect balance between oxygen consumption and oxygen delivery to the brain. 
In contrast to pulse oximetry that relies on pulsatile blood flow, cerebral oximeters are independent of pulsatile flow. When you get a value from a cerebral oximeter, is that yep. mainly venous blood or is that arterial blood or is it a combination of the two? Um, so cerebral oximeters mainly measure uh, the oxygenation status from venous blood. Bearing that in mind, therefore, what's a normal value for a, a cerebral oximetry reading? Normal values range from between 60 to 80 percent. However, lower values of 55 to 60 percent are not necessarily considered abnormal in some cardiac patients, such as in those patients that have a low cardiac output state, possibly due to heart failure, patients with diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, um, or in patients with severe atherosclerosis. Cerebral oximetry values, it should be said, should be attained prior to induction of anaesthesia in order to provide a baseline reference. It's also important to obtain bilateral cerebral oxygenation measurements. There are anatomical variations, such as an incomplete circle of Willis or severe carotid artery stenosis, that can create erroneous readings. So if I'm interpreting what you said correctly then, the cerebral oximetry value is perhaps maybe more individual to a patient than a pulse oximetry value might be, uh, although obviously there's a similar concept um, with uh, lung disease and pulse oximetry. But bearing that in mind, what sort of drop in the baseline oximeter reading is considered allowable or problematic? Yeah. So the value for clinically significant cerebral desaturation based on cerebral oximetry measurements remain undefined. And different papers and intervention protocols have varied in their definition of cerebral desaturation. For example, Merkin and Arango, in their 2009 paper entitled Near-Infrared Spectroscopy as an Index of Brain and Tissue Oxygenation, published in the British Journal of Anesthesia, state that during carotid endarterectomy, a decrease in cerebral oxygenation values of more than 12% was an, was an indicator of brain ischemia, and should necessitate shunt placement during internal carotid artery cross-clamping. In contrast, other authors has advocated a more than 20% reduction from baseline values. But the threshold for intervention appears to be patient and surgery dependent. Further research is required in order to attempt to quantify a suitable threshold for intervention. It's important to say that cerebral oximetry values should not be interpreted and acted upon in isolation. Trends in cerebral oximetry values should be noted, as well as all clinical information uh, attained from the patient, as well as the physiological state of the patient at the time of measurement. I think that's a really important concept, and those are some really important overview points. But for listeners who maybe are new to using this technology and would like a, a number to start using in their practice, would you advocate the 12%, the 20%, or, or something in between? Within our paper, we have a, a, a treatment algorithm, uh, which, um, which we've adapted from an algorithm uh, devised from Denault. And in that algorithm, we state um, that we should be acting upon a more than 20% reduction in cerebral oximetry values. So I would commend that, uh, that flowchart that you mentioned yeah. to, uh, to listeners. And um, if we could just expand on that, it also describes a bit about how the anaesthetist may respond to a fall in cerebral oximetry reading. So could you kind of illustrate some of the uh, strategies for responding to a fall in cerebral oximetry? Yeah, of course. So one of the most common limitations often quoted about cerebral oximetry monitoring is the absence of an intervention protocol that's been devised to treat a decrease in regional brain oxygenation. 
As you've mentioned, our paper includes a flowchart as to how we could possibly consider responding to a decrease in values. Once cerebral desaturation has been identified, our algorithm recommends checking the patient's head position to ensure it's in the neutral position, if possible, and also to check the endotracheal tube ties to ensure that they're not too tight and causing um, venous outflow obstruction or arterial inflow obstruction. Following this, uh, our flowchart splits into two main limbs, essentially looking at um, ways to try and improve cerebral oxygenation by, ox by optimising oxygen delivery and also by optimising or reducing um, oxygen consumption by the brain. To improve oxygen delivery to the brain, we recommend ensuring that the patient has an adequate cardiac output by optimising heart rate and stroke volume, by ensuring that the patient has an adequate mean arterial pressure, at which point we should be giving consideration to vasopressors, and any hypoxia should be treated and the patient's ventilation optimised. Consideration should also be given to uh, trying to enhance the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. And if the patient is anemic, then we feel consideration should be given to um, a potential blood transfusion. To, to reduce the cerebral oxygen consumption, uh, our flowchart recommends ensuring that the patient has an adequate depth of anaesthesia, and if necessary, increasing the depth of anaesthesia, avoiding hyperthermia, and also consideration should be given to the use of uh, anti-epileptics to control any, any seizure activity. Desaturation occurring during cardiac surgery may also indicate inadequate cardiopulmonary bypass flow or arterial cannula misplacement or kinking. And in the context of a sort of significant or prolonged desaturation during surgery, would you advocate anything different in the post-operative phase or um, would routine observations be be adequate? I think there have been many studies looking at the post-operative phase following cerebral desaturation. Um, several studies have said that um, prolonged desaturation occurring during surgery is associated with higher incidence of post-operative cognitive dysfunction. Whether or not we should be doing anything different in the post-operative phase is difficult to say at this particular moment in time and I think more evidence and more research is required in order to assess the clinical implications of intraoperative cerebral desaturations. So in what context is cerebral oximetry most helpful as a monitor? We've mentioned it a little bit in the context of cardiac surgery. Yep. Is, is that the only uh, context in which it might be useful? No, it's, questions have been raised regarding the clinical utility of cerebral oximetry monitoring. It's well documented that patients undergoing cardiac surgery are at risk of adverse perioperative neurological outcomes. Salter and colleagues carried out a study involving 265 patients undergoing coronary artery bypass grafting. Patients were randomised to two groups. Cerebral oximeters were used in both the groups. However, one of the, the, the groups received cerebral oximetry monitoring and interventions to try and improve cerebral oximetry values if they decreased more than 20% from baseline. The other group was the control group. The study found an association between cerebral de desaturation and early post-operative cognitive dysfunction. However, the study did not identify an association between the use of a cerebral oximetry guided intervention protocol and a reduction in post-operative cognitive dysfunction. Merkin et al. carried out a prospective randomised control study involving 200 patients undergoing cardiac surgery. 
One group had intraoperative cerebral oximetry monitoring and again interventions to try and maintain cerebral oximetry measurements. And the other group underwent blinded regional cerebral oxygenation monitoring with no intervention. There was no significant difference in the incidence of adverse complications between the two groups. However, patients in the control group, the group without any interventions, had longer periods of cerebral desaturation and a longer post-operative intensive care unit stay. We also know that carotid endarterectomies are associated with post-operative strokes. Monitoring devices already exist, such as transcranial Dopplers, EEGs, and somatosensory evoke potentials. Cerebral oximetry monitoring can also be used as a tool for detection of cerebral ischemia. In the Merkin paper stated earlier, uh, they stated that a reduction in cerebral oximetry values of more than 12% from a baseline preoperative value have been identified as a reliable, sensitive and specific threshold for the detection of brain ischemia and may indicate the need for shunt placement during internal carotid artery clamping. Is um, cerebral oximetry used in all cardiac and vascular patients at your centre or do you select patients? And if so, on what basis do you select them? So within our centre at University Hospital Coventry and Warwickshire, cerebral oximetry monitors are really used on the individual consultant preference. It's widely believed, however, that cerebral oximetry monitoring may have the additional benefit of being able to detect incorrect arterial cannula placement and kinking, as well as inadequate flow rates during uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. In addition, the majority of our consultant cardiac anaesthetists will use it during deep hypothermic arrest. During this time, the brain is particularly susceptible to the onset of ischemic damage. However, there is insufficient evidence surrounding the sensitivity of cerebral oximetry monitoring during profound hypothermia at temperatures less than 25 degrees. During the rewarming phase of of cardiopulmonary bypass, a reduction in cerebral oximetry values may be seen, and this may be due to the patient being rewarmed too rapidly, creating an imbalance between cerebral oxygen supply and demand. Advocates within our department will use cerebral oximetry monitoring as a guide to slow the rate of patient rewarming. So we've discussed a few areas where cerebral oximetry is used sort of relatively routinely, uh, albeit with uh, the, the preference of certain consultants. Are there any areas of practice outside what we've discussed in which you see cerebral oximetry becoming more popular in the future? Yeah, I can only see the, the, the role of cerebral oximetry increasing as more evidence continues to emerge. Cerebral oximeters have the the potential to diagnose intraoperative cerebral ischemic hypoxic events and therefore potentially reducing the incidence of postoperative complications. We know that carotid endarterectomies are associated with the carotid endarterectomy hyperperfusion syndrome and we know that this occurs as a result of impaired cerebral autoregulation following repair of a carotid stenosis. There's a correlation between cerebral oxygen saturation values and changes in cerebral blood flow after declamping the internal carotid artery. Cerebral oximeters could therefore be used to identify patients at risk of developing this cerebral hyperperfusion syndrome. Cerebral oximeters may also be of some use during orthopedic surgery. For example, in monitoring cerebral perfusion during shoulder surgery in the beach chair position, It's well documented that in this position, patients can experience uh, hypertension and as a result, reduction in cerebral perfusion. 
Cerebral oximetry monitoring may provide a means to monitor this cerebral perfusion, allowing timely intervention and improvement in cerebral oxygen delivery and therefore a potential reduction in adverse postoperative events. Another example um, for the increasing role of cerebral oximetry may be during hepatobiliary surgery. Impaired cerebral autoregulation and increases in intracranial pressure have been demonstrated in patients with severe liver d- disease or following liver transplants. The impaired autoregulation and elevated in- intracranial pressure can predispose cerebral tissues to ischemic or hyperemic injuries during surgery. Cerebral oximeters may provide a means to monitor and guide hemodynamic and ventilatory parameters during surgery. Like hemoglobin, bilirubin also absorbs light in the infrared range, and this can result in falsely low cerebral oximetry values. Several studies have evaluated cerebral oximetry during hepatobiliary surgery, and studies have highlighted that although patients with increased bilirubin levels had lower baseline cerebral oximetry measurements, the magnitude of the change of cerebral oximetry values were independently associated with factors reflecting cerebral oxygen delivery. Premature neonates also have impaired cerebral autoregulation and are at risk of developing periventricular leukomalacia and intraventricular hemorrhage. Now these are usually diagnosed by transcranial ultrasounds and by the time of diagnosis permanent neurological damage may have occurred. Changes in cerebral oxygenation values as detected by cerebral oximeters provide an indirect measure of cerebral blood flow. Continuous cerebral oxygenation monitoring may enable the early detection and prevention of periventricular leukomalacia and intraventricular hemorrhage. Finally, cerebral oximeters may have an increase in role for the elderly population undergoing surgery. Elderly patients are at risk of developing postoperative cognitive dysfunction, and some studies have shown a relationship between intraoperative cerebral oxygen desaturation and postoperative cognitive dysfunction. By preventing this cerebral oxygen desaturation, we may potentially be able to, to reduce the, the incidence of the postoperative cognitive dysfunction. So it sounds from what you said like cerebral oximetry may well have some really interesting clinical benefits depending on what the evidence shows. Finally, you mentioned in your article that near-infrared spectroscopy has the potential to be used as a perfusion monitor not only for the brain but in other organs. Can you give a sort of brief overview of, uh, of how near-infrared spectroscopy might be used in other contexts. Yeah, so near-infrared spectroscopy monitoring has been increasingly used to monitor the adequacy of the tissue and organ perfusion when placed on sites, as you mentioned, other than the scalp. So, for example, uh, near-infrared spectroscopy could be used as a potential marker of perfusion in hepatic, renal, and even splanchic tissues. It's also been evaluated as a potential screening tool for the need for blood transfusion in trauma patients at risk of developing hemorrhagic shock. So thank you very much indeed, uh, Will Tosh. You've uh, given us a really interesting overview of what I think is a developing technology which all of us will have to become more familiar with over the coming years. Thanks. You're welcome. So thanks to Will and Cliff for an interesting discussion which explained the principles, use and applications of cerebral oximetry. I'd recommend that listeners have a look at Will's paper for a more in-depth explanation and some excellent diagrams. Please join us again next month for the January 2017 BJA Education podcast, in which Ben will be talking to Dr. Ben Gibson about his paper on mitral valve disease. Remember that you can leave feedback about the podcasts via the BJA Education website, and you can follow us on Twitter at BJA Journals.
Thank you for listening to the BJA Education Podcast.